0: On this episode of Riding the 3x3, i Russ Heltman fly solo on the Tuesday edition with the Home Run Derby. Wrapping up at Coors Field in Denver, Colorado. A lot of fun to watch Pete Alonso go back-to-back and become the third player in MLB history to do that. And then we touch on UFC 264. Oh, how sweet it is to see the Irishmen go down. Conor McGregor gets what he deserves and the Diamond Poirier, just like I predicted moves on to get his title shot against Charles Oliveira in the lightweight division. We'll chop up all that in lane number two. And then lane number three, we got NBA Finals Game 3 coming up on Wednesday. I run through all the ins and outs of Game 2, what I saw from Giannis, what I saw from DeAndre Ayton, some uh, some adjustments, and some interesting and namely players, role player to be exact, on the Phoenix Suns that has become a ghost in this series ever since Uh, He he cratered against the LA Clippers. All that coming up on this episode of Riding the 3x3. We will always catch you on Spotify, Google, Apple, Spotify again, Spotify three times, all the podcast platforms. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. Let's get in the lane number one. Riding the three by three, we're live here on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for everybody tuning into the show. Tuesday, So that means another solo edition. We have the NBA Finals to talk about today. We'll hit that in the last portion of the show. Lane number three, Milwaukee punches back behind Giannis's forty-point double-double to make it two to one in that series. With Game Three on, should be Game Four on Wednesday night. And then last night, MLB Home Run Derby, a lot of fun to watch those balls soar out of Coors Field in Denver last night. We'll touch on all that with Pete Alonzo becoming just the third player in history to win win consecutive uh, home run derbies. And then we got UFC 264. Just call me the prophet, people. Just call me the prophet. I said it would happen last Tuesday. Mapped it all out in our segment. We're going to map out how my uh, mapping went in terms of Dustin Poirier Getting the job done pretty easily against the washed Conor McGregor, Brittle Bones, Irishman himself. Just cannot keep it together. Talks all the trash. Can't back it up. We'll dive into all that coming up. But first, we're going to start in Major League Baseball with the Home Run Derby. What a fun night it was. We had some absolutely fantastic matchups, including in the first round with uh, with. Uh, Shohei Otani going down to Juan Soto, 31-28. Definitely the highlight of the first round. I love how they – I honestly like the times event because it felt – I feel like if they went back to the old format with how great of hitters these guys are now, how uh, how well adept they are at seeing these pitches, we, this Pilmar Derby would go on for like five hours. It would be that long because the guys – like Juan Soto is a perfect example. They go to a playoff. They go to a minute swing off after being tied at 22 they end up being tied after that next minute at 28. So that prompts a three-pitch swing-off to uh, decide who keeps moving on. You just keep doing that until somebody ends up not hitting a home run. Juan Soto was perfect on those pitches, three for three. Just kept just kept waiting for the right 55 mile, 65 mile per hour ball, and then boom into the night. Soto, I think, hit the longest home run of the evening, 520 feet. We had. I believe seven or eight home runs go um, over five hundred ten feet in this in this uh, outing. Store, Trevor Story, uh, hometown kid for the Colorado Rockies, the hometown participant in the home run derby this year, hit a five hundred eighteen foot bomb. So the hu- no humidor for the baseballs, tightly wound with the stitching, and sluggers taking BP. You get some deep, deep shots and. Got to shout out my uh, co-host Patrick Fetch for tossing out the over 515 and a half feet for the longest home run on the night. Cha-ching, we cashed that. Big green on the home run derby. But it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun to watch. Salvador Perez set a catcher's home run record uh, for a single round with 28, although he uh, ended up getting ousted in his first round matchup against Pete Alonso, the eventual victor. It was the first time every single lower seed Made it through the first round. Had never seen that before in the history of the Home Run Derby. It was a lot of fun to watch, though. P. Lonzo, third player to win consecutive derbies. Joins Ken Griffey Jr. He was out there with the long lens camera shooting photos all night. That was cool to see. Ken Griffey Jr., one of those baseball players that – just loves the game. It's very clear he's in love with the sport of baseball. was having the time of his life out there uh chopping it up with all the guys as he was the uh the course field winner of the first home run derby at the All-Star game when they had it there in 1998. And then Yoenis Cespedes also went back-to-back in 2013 and 2014. Pete Alonso though has a swing built for this event. I hope he just plays in it every single year of his career. Just makes it they named the trophy after him because they might eventually doing it with how well capable he is. With that, just easy, smooth swing. He's got his trusty BP guy, uh older BP guy at that. Didn't matter. Just throwing him pipes right down Broadway. And he hit uh, he's now hit 131 total home run uh derby ding dongs in his career. Became the first player in history to surpass a hundred derby home runs. And he might get to he might get to two hundred. I wouldn't be shocked before it's all said and done. I fully expect P. Alonzo to keep participating in this event. And I love the uh the bats. I love the bat that they use in this one. Uh, Pete Alonzo specifically um, had a great, uh, a great like design on his, and it was a lot of fun to see that. I'll go ahead and pull this up here for the people to uh, for the people to see. But it was like a graffiti design. had uh, had a bunch of different things that I was uh, I was intrigued to see out of uh, out of Pete Alonzo and the rest of the, uh, the rest of the participants. They all had like their own um, specific bat design for each guy. That I was uh, I was I was I was very impressed with. So we'll pull that up right here. Pete Alonso becomes the back-to-back champion of the Home Run Derby. And overall, though, like that first-round matchup with um, with Shohei Otani and Juan Soto, a tough eight seed for Shohei Otani to have to go up against there with uh, with Juan Soto being one of the the best young sluggers in all of Major League Baseball. You can go get a, get a nice peek at the um, at the graffiti New York Mets bat there for Pete Alonzo, but man, the raw power that Juan Soto possesses, the way he can hit it to all levels of the field, that was just a a mano-a-mano fantastic matchup that I was really, really excited to watch, and we got got it to live up to full expectations. I think it was a little tough for Shohei to come out kind of last, have to see, all these guys second portion of his um the second portion of his at bat and when the final minute and a half he hit like 18 home runs or something like that he finally got into a rhythm but it was not enough to move on and Pete Alonzo put on a show at a probably the most impressive like entertaining home run derby I've seen in a long time obviously 2019 was a lot of fun with uh was that Jock Peterson and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. going mano-a-mano, mano, 40 home runs to 39 home runs. That was cool. And then I, then I remember the Josh Hamilton uh, night back in 2008. But Pete Alonzo was just a machine out there. I don't think I've seen anyone swing so well perfected for an event like this. He was just like a robot. Same motion, same ball placement, ding-dongs all night long. So fun, fun event. Uh, from Denver. I'm so glad they just de-juiced the ball. They let us get uh get the full taste of the type of power that these guys possess in the major leagues and congrats to Pete Alonso who becomes the uh the third player ever to win back-to-back home run derbies. We'll have to see what uh what kind of effect this has on the home run leaders going into the second half of the season because I believe um Otani's the only the second one in this decade to Play in the home run derby after leading uh, the uh, home run metrics at the break. He's got 33 that leads all of Major League Baseball right now. Some some, uh, some overwhelming kind of, not witches theories, but um, some prevailing thoughts historically that the home run derby is bad for the swing. Is this going to affect Otani? Is this kind of going all balls to the wall? A thousand percent all the way trying to get those homers, trying to go mano a mano with Juan Soto. Did that do anything to his mechanics? We'll have to find out. Uh, hopefully, didn't um, knock on what affect his pitching mechanics, which we'll see on full display as he is starting the all star game, uh, from Denver on Tuesday night. We'll give a little pick. Uh, we'll give a little pick now for that. We'll dive into that to close out this baseball segment. But Atani, Pete Alonso, the whole crew put on a great show. Shout out to Trey Mancini, too, who I think the, the a year ago this time was undergoing cancer treatment was wrapping up chemotherapy and now boom he's hitting ding-dongs in the in the uh, All-Star Game Home Run Derby and making it all the way to the finals at that with the longest odds on the entire board at 12 to 1 from Trey Mancini so fun story there on both sides of the equation didn't get the Otani uh, coronation but we got a lot of great Otani at that and some fun storylines that percolated Throughout the rest of the event, so fun, fun night from Denver, and shout out to our buddy Sean Gates for uh, being boots on the ground out there. I'm sure he was. Uh, I'm sure he was. He was. He was not intoxicated at all. He, he, was, he was having no fun. There's no way he was having fun out there in Denver as the American League tonight trying to uh, trying to stab the heart of our National League fan Sean Gates. He's a Denver, Colorado uh, native and Colorado Rockies fan. American League's won seven straight All Star games, people. Nineteen three and one is the league in this outing since nineteen ninety seven. The NL has been horrible, just horrible since then. We'll have to see if the uh, if the National League can finally get off the Schneid here and figure something out. Seven thirty p.m. on Fox. I'm going to go ahead and pick. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pick the American League. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's basically a toss up here. Uh, National League's a minus-111 favorite, slightly. So Nash, or American League, minus-109, I'm guessing there. Take your Poison, All lineups, we'll go through them. Otani, Guerrero, Bogarts, Judge, Devers, Simeon, Perez, Hernandez, and Mullins. Pat's, uh, Pat's favorite guy, Cedric Mullins, right there, getting his shout-out. And then Tatis, Muncy, Arenado, Freeman, Castellanos, Winker, Real Muto, Reynolds, Frazier. You know what? Because there's two red legs in the All-Star Game starting... We're picking the National League. Give me the National League to win this one. Maybe there'll be some uh, fatigue from Otani right off the bump. He gives up one or two, uh, one or two runs in the first inning, and the uh, National League's right on their way. So give me the National League to, to uh, get the monkey off the back and break a streak of seven straight victories for the American League All Stars in tonight's festivities. But it's been a fun, fun American and and National League All Star break so far. Cannot see, could can wait to see. What, uh, what kind of fireworks we get tonight from the uh, All-Star Game, which is basically the only game in town. It's that time of the year, people. We've uh, wrapped up the NHL Stanley Cup Final, NBA Finals on travel days, um, baseball obviously in their All-Star Breaks. So there's no baseball going on. It's basically uh, a dead time in American sports, but it's not a dead time in the riding of three by three confines. As we move along to lane number two, I got to do it. We got to talk about the, uh, the prediction that went 100% correct. Didn't even, I, I mean, it was 100% correct. I predicted TKO in the fourth round. We got doctor stoppage TKO after the first round. But all in all, Conor McGregor proved me right. The ghost himself. That's what he is now, people. He's a sham. He's a ghost. I don't, I mean, I don't ever pay for these fights. I just go watch them in places because I don't understand paying $60 for a pay per view. But I just, I don't. I don't know that he's box office material anymore. Sure, people are still going to buy the fights. I know for a fact he's going to come back because there's no way you're going to go out and end your career like that on uh, on a streak of, what, one in four in the past five years? One in five McGregor is in the past five years if you were to count the boxing match, which I'm not going to count the, the Mayweather loss in, the, in that sense in an exhibition. But this was no exhibition on Saturday night from Vegas. All the stars were out. All the pageantry was out McGregor doing the Billy strut doing the, the obnoxious Irishman suit, all that stuff. Yada, yada, yada. He's a sham. He's an absolute sham artist people. He was getting destroyed in that first round. I got into an argument with people uh, about this in, in some group chats, but it wasn't even close total strikes. He won in the first round. Sure. But significant strikes got beat by almost double digits, took 35 shots to the head, took uh took three minutes and 18 seconds of ground control time from Dustin Poirier in that first round. He was getting so desperate. He tried to go for a guillotine people. Conor McGregor tried to go for a guillotine on Dustin, the diamond Poirier, the most well-adept, well-rounded, lightweight fighter in this division. He tried to guillotine him in a non-compromising position. It was that desperate of an attempt for Conor McGregor, who now at 22 and six is searching for answers. And I don't, Like you cannot, and I know they're going to do it. This is what's going to happen, people. The Diamond, my guy, Louisiana's best, is going to go out there as the number one lightweight, pound for pound fighter in the world right now, according to ESVN. Probably dispatch Charles Oliveira in, I would say, October sometime. November is when they'll schedule that fight. And then McGregor coming off surgery, who is broken tibia, which uh, was three hours long this weekend. Got it repaired. That's going to be at least nine months, I would guess, before he's back in the ring, able to do anything. And that's going to time up perfectly for McGregor coming off of a loss and one win since 2016 to most likely fight Dustin Poirier in the fourth bout for the title, which I would be a little miffed about. Not that I would care a ton because I can't control these things and I would still watch. It would be entertaining. But like that's not the way this should work. It's not the way it should work at all. McGregor, like every other fighter, should have to move up through the ranks, sell a couple pay-per-views, and beat some actual fighters before we respect him at all. Why should anyone respect Conor McGregor's fighting ability at this current moment He hasn't been running in five years, people. Five years. That's why it made no sense to me that Dustin Poirier wasn't at least a minus 200 favorite here in a, in a, in a bout where he has had the confidence to take out Conor McGregor before. He, had, he has the better fighter. He's the more well adept fighter. Ten straight victories. Twenty-eight and six overall. Inning the prime of his career, right as Conor McGregor is choking his away. And and I agree with with Khabib Nurmagomedov here, who uh, did a wide-ranging interview with uh, with ESPN this weekend. Money and fame show who you are. Quote from Khabib: There all the time we hear that money and fame change people. No, when money and fame come, they ch- these two things show who you are. And what has McGregor done? He punched an old guy in a bar in 2019. You guys can watch everything he didn't understand. It's just like Dustin said, this guy is a bag of, I don't even need to finish the sentence. And it's true. Like McGregor used to be at least somewhat palatable post fight when he would lose. He would be somewhat gracious. And I know that it's all about selling fights. It's all about if you're going to be the heel, lean into being the heel. But at some point, show some humanity, man. Show some respect. Like, you just got destroyed by your rival, Dustin Poirier, which is turning not—it's turning into a domination at this point. You're going to go and defame his wife while you're sitting down with a broken leg that he just gave you while you're getting stretchered off? While After earlier in the week, you said you were going to send Poirier out of a stretcher? Karma. Karma is a cold, cold thing. And obviously, uh, karmically for his money, it went very well for Conor McGregor. He's going to make a lot of money off this pay-per-view, as is Dustin Poirier, who took this fight because of the money. He wanted to cash this check. He had an opportunity to go up against Charles Oliveira for the title belt, um, I believe, in May or April, but pushed that down the line. Dana White was okay with it, obviously, because Dana like makes likes to make money as well. They scheduled this fight, and Conor McGregor comes in, breaks his leg, because he was totally physically dominated by the diamond Dustin Poirier. It wasn't even close. I think that it would have been stopped, like I mentioned, in the middle rounds via TKO. Conor McGregor would have taken too much damage. Like, it was clear he had no clue what to do past those opening leg kick barrages once he went for that guillotine on the ground. Once he started to try to throw punches and work with Dustin Poirier, the diamond, on the ground, people, a place where where Conor McGregor never, ever has had success in his career It just knew, and it just showed me that he was a desperate fighter, a desperate old fighter, hanging on for dear life, now with a totally destroyed leg that's going to take almost the better part of a year to recover. Will he be able to throw leg kicks with that leg again? How confident is he going to be in the structure of those bones? These are all questions now for a guy in Conor McGregor who, tip of the cap to him, sold the whiskey companies, made all the money in the world, but his legacy in MMA is never going to be the same. He will never be a top-of-the-level fighter again. He may fight for a belt again, sure, but he will never wear that gold across his waist ever again. It's over. It's done. Sure, he's going to keep fighting. Obviously, Conor McGregor is going to keep fighting. You're going to cash those pay-per-views. Everyone's still going to watch, but it's done. He is no longer a top-of-the-food-chain player. He is no longer the biggest great-right shark in the ocean. The Diamond Poirier is ready to go munch on some minnows, and he's getting set to do that against Charles Oliveira in the fall. An actual good person, Dustin Poirier, instead of Conor McGregor, who for some reason gets beloved all over the world when he is a bad guy, a flat-out bad dude. Go support Dustin Poirier. He's got a great hot sauce down in Louisiana, has a great charity, does great work for the Boys and Girls Clubs down there. He's actually a good person. Let's, uh, Let's support that on top of him being a fun fighter to watch and a fun fighter to interact with who the mind games weren't working this week. He totally put the mind games into Conor McGregor, put him to sleep, and man, it was it was bad. Like, just watching him lay on the ground up against that cage and Joe Rogan had to get down on the ground, and then he's sitting there trying to make fun of his wife while you just had your leg broken by the guy. What are we doing here? What are we doing here, as Taylor Twelman likes to say? What are we even doing here? And looking at the uh, other bouts from that event. I was very impressed with uh with the game plan from Gilbert Burns against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Uh Stephen Thompson obviously very well adept for his kickboxing acumen, one of the best uh best players in the sport in terms of using his legs, using his length to stay away from those big gangly fighters uh all over the, the uh all over the mat and to me I was I was rather rather impressed with that and overall Gilbert Burns showing that he's not necessarily at the level of Kamaru Usman right now in that welterweight division, but he is close. He not knocked Usman down. I'm pretty sure he knocked Usman down in that fight. Got him kind of close on the ropes. Usman recovered as he always is tend to do. And eventually, uh, eventually made it happen and, and got the victory. But man, like Gilbert Burns is a scary, scary human being. I loved the game planning at Stephen Thompson. Wasn't necessarily the most, uh, wasn't necessarily the most entertaining fight to watch, but that's sometimes what you got to do when you're trying to get back to that championship level as uh, as Steve Wonderboy Thompson is. Sean O'Malley, though, and and Chris Moutinho, that was an entertaining fight, with O'Malley setting a bantamweight record, people, of 230 significant strikes landed. It's the second most in a three-round fight in MMA or in UFC history behind Nate Diaz with 238 a few years ago. This guy Mutinio, with the, uh, the 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 Joker hair, was literally just keeping his hands down, coming forward at Sean O'Malley and letting him punch him in the face. They they literally ended the fight because Mutinio was getting punched in the face too much. I thought it was a little soft to end the fight with 30 seconds left, but I can get you a lot of a lot of praise. I can get you talked about on all the shows. I wouldn't have talked about Chris Mutinio and Sean O'Malley had uh, had our guy just kind of turtled in the first round and uh, and taking a beating. He showed he's got the chin. He showed he's got the uh, got the stamina, at least, to compete in this level of mixed martial arts. And Sean O'Malley came into that thing as a minus 900 favorite, was heavily favored to finish in less than one and a half rounds. But Chris Moutinho showed up, got the job done, and, uh, and made some money, made some paper, and made himself some fame and some serious cash in the future because of his ability to stick in the ring with Sean O'Malley, at, almost to the... Uh, to the final whistle there in the third round. But man, oh man, Charles Oliveira, unanimous decision. Wasn't quite the entertaining kind of blow for blow punching versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson kicking that we thought we might see in terms of a yin and yang fight. But I liked what I saw there. I loved what I saw at O'Malley. Love seeing Greg Hardy get knocked out. And who doesn't like seeing Greg Hardy get knocked out? That was probably the most, uh, the most satisfying thing of the night, except for, Uh, the TKO to uh, the Irishman, Mr. McGregor as Dustin Poirier becomes the third quickest fighter in UFC history to 20 wins doing it in 26 fights Uh, right up there with some names like John Jones, the goat and George St. Pierre also considered the goat in some eyes. They did it in 22 fights. He has the most KOs in lightweight history. People eight KOs now by Dustin, the diamond Poirier. What did I tell you? What did I tell you on Tuesday? Cash it all the way. Fun, fun night at UFC 264. Cannot wait to see what we get out of uh, Siro Gane versus Derek Lewis. They they totally gypped my guy Francis Ngannou for his next shot to defend the heavyweight title belt. He will have to match up with whoever wins the interim heavyweight title belt between the undefeated Gane and the uh, – I think Derek Lewis has lost, has lost twice but has shown the heavy, heavy hands – knockout ability can drop anybody anytime any place and also it's just it's a great great matchup of like an athletic longer heavyweight in Ghana who likes to to punch at a distance and use his length to his advantage versus a Derek Lewis the phone boost style boxer doesn't like to get on the ground as much likes to end fights early because My guy, Derek Lewis, big boy, likes to go out there and uh, and have a little championship dinner following, if you know what I mean. Wants to get in there, into a phone booth. It's going to be a great matchup next month. I believe that one's in Vegas as well. So UFC, man, they just keep it rolling throughout the entire calendar year with great, great fights. We'll see what they have in store next month. And then uh, Makachev this weekend on Fight Night. Probably won't be talking about that one too much on, on this show, but keep an eye on him, people. Makachev. Is a disciple of Khabib er- er- Nurmagomedov. God, it's, these guys, these Dagestan guys—they got the the names that have you have you researching full-on new syllables and stuff. But uh, Nurmagomedov's protege, uh, and he is something else. Lightweight division as well. Nineteen and one overall MMA record. One of the best grapplers on the planet, if not the best grappler in the lightweight division right now. That his uh, not his mentor Nick Khabib has retired, so that's going to be a lot of fun to watch this weekend. We'll have to see what happens with our guy, uh, our guy Makachev versus Moises. Makachev versus Moises gonna be very interesting to see what Islam can do versus Tiago Moises, the uh, kind of stand-up, uh, more on his feet punching style Brazilian fighter, uh, differentiating styles in terms of stance and reach. But we'll have to see what 19-1 versus 15-4 looks like. Makachev, a minus 575 favorite in that fight. He is heavily, uh, heavily expected to continue his run and get to 20 and one in his MMA career. Whew. A team that is trying to get to 2-2 in the NBA finals coming up here in the next 24 to 48 hours. The Milwaukee Bucks get it to 2-1. I expected them to do that. I expect them to win tomorrow night and push this thing to a best of three series with Phoenix having home court advantage there. But, I mean, I got a, I got a lot of stats, people, for how great our guy Giannis Antetokounmpo is. He's answered the bell. I said they needed more Giannis. They need to feed more Giannis. And that's exactly what they did. 14 of 23 from the field. 41 point double-double. He's the first player to... To have back-to-back forty-point double doubles, Stela with the 3 uh, p Lakers back in the early two thousands—it's just insane. It's insane what we are seeing in uh, in in this finals run from Giannis. Oh, I forgot LeBron James in twenty sixteen. Can't can't short the King on the uh, that forty-point double double. Twenty-four points in the restricted area, people. He was aggressive from the jump. He knew exactly what he wanted to do to this Suns team from the jump, went right at the Andre Ayton, didn't care about his young defensive prowess at all, got him in early foul trouble, and started to eat in the paint because of it. 12 for 12 from the field inside of the restricted area. That's the most, or tied for the most, in an NBA Finals game over the last quarter century with LeBron James in 2017, and who else? Shaquille O'Neal in 2004. Oh, and he did all this, people, with uh, one turnover on a 40-10-5 and five Finals game. It's never happened since they started tracking turnovers in 1977-78. It's just, what else can you say about Giannis? When he's playing this well, when he's shooting this well from inside the paint, when he's he's buttering his bread the way he's supposed to, 79% from the paint in this finals, that's the highest in any playoff series of his career. He knows exactly what he has to do. He's going out there and doing it. And he smells blood in the water now that Dario Saric is no longer available for this Phoenix Suns team. Like I don't know if they can legitimately play Frank Kaminsky at all. He's a total sieve, especially in real true minutes. Like for Kaminsky played 15 14 minutes in this game, I would say 7 of them came in actual real basketball time where the game was still kind of hanging in the balance uh before Milwaukee ended up winning 120 to 101. He was minus 12. You don't put a ton in single game plus minus, but he was a minus 12, six points, three for five from the field, four rebounds, no steals, no blocks, and two assists. He was passing up open shots to pass the ball to covered three-pointers. Like that was what we were seeing, covered three-point shooters. So I just I don't know what what, what solution there really is. Like they tried some Abdel Nader, he had the old minus five plus minus on zero stats, literally zero stats in seven minutes. Cam Johnson had 30 minutes. He's going to see, that's basically the, the ceiling of his playing time. You don't really want to run him out any more than that. Campaign, that's a huge storyline and an under-talked-about storyline as well, people. Since that injury to the uh, against the LA Clippers after game two in that series, where he had 29 points, gets injured in game three, he's averaging less than six points per game since then, people. He's given them nothing. They have no guard creation off the bench right now. That's a problem. He was three of 10 from the field, a minus 18, game worst, minus 18 from campaign on seven points from three of 10 shooting, like I mentioned. Like even uh, Trey, who's this, Trey Alexander? I don't even know this guy's name, people. And he got a got a minute of runtime, obviously, because they were they were getting blown out. But Tyshawn Alexander's getting out there. That's the depths that they're having to reach to. and it just goes to show how important those middle of the lottery draft picks can be. When you have a guy like Jalen, 10th overall, six ten, stretch five out of Maryland, thought he would maybe give you some bench minutes this season, be a solid backup beyond John Drayton. He, I don't think, has played in the finals, and I think he's played like less than 10 minutes all playoffs. That's how little they're getting from their 10th overall pick. And it's just a huge problem right now when you are without the services of Dario Saric, and Torrey Craig is a shell of himself. 15 minutes, sure, but one for five from the field, it just goes to show a banged up role player on the road. You can't expect a lot out of that. So looking at this Phoenix Suns team, obviously Ayton, you want to get him more minutes, 24 minutes, was dealing with foul trouble, had five fouls in the game, and they just kind of kept him on the pine. Thankfully for me, right? 27 and a half points, points and rebounds. They kept him on the pine for the final eight minutes of the game. He finishes with with guess what, people. 27 points, and rebounds. Yeah, there you go. Nice little dramatic pause right there. But yeah, thanks Monty Williams. We, we appreciate you. Eight for 11, though. He played well. He just got into a foul. Tr- he got into foul trouble. I was I watched the entire game. Was mashing fools early on in that contest. Was getting to the rim at will. Playing really well as a short roller and uh, and operating in the pick and roll with Booker and Chris Paul. But overall, it just it just was not enough because, like I mentioned, Giannis. Smells blood. 79% from the field inside the paint so far this series. The highest of his career. He is absolutely locked in on what he needs to do. Only took two threes in this game. That's exactly how many he should take. At most, two to three threes. 14 of 23 from the field. Every single other shot, I believe. Was, I think he took like three or four jumpers outside the paint. But right around 15 to 18 shots in the paint per game is going to be a winning formula for the Bucks. You've got 41 out of Giannis. Chris Middleton was decent and overall, not killer. He wasn't, he, we didn't get the Chris Middleton game yet. We still haven't gotten one of those. Maybe they get it in game four. He went six to 14, 18 points. One of the rare sub 40 point or sub 40% shooting performances from Middleton that the Bucs are able to overcome. And then Brooke Lopez. I said they should hammer more Brooke Lopez, but because there wasn't as much DeAndre Ayton involved in this game, they didn't have to. Only had to throw him out there for 21 minutes. Was a solid Uh, four of nine from the field. But to me though, the most underrated aspect of this game was Drew Holiday and his slam the door shut triples in that third quarter. Phoenix was making a bit of a run. They were coming back at him in the, uh, in the first half of that uh, opening portion of the third quarter and Brooke and Chris Middleton, excuse me, Drew Holiday took control of the game. Once Cam Johnson, I think he pushed it to like six points. There was a little Cam Johnson run in there and then uh, Holiday hit back-to-back-to-back triples, a couple pull-ups at that, and ended up going 5 or 10 from the field from downtown, 21 points, and a plus 22, people. That just goes to show the defensive acumen that Drew Holiday has been playing with and can subsidize his offense with if they're all working in congruency. Because Drew Holiday, he was getting compared to Eric Bledsoe, and I brought up those comparisons, which were a little unfair, and I've made that point by saying, and when I did that last week by saying Drew Holiday is a miles better defender than Eric Bledsoe, and he did a great job defending uh, Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Him and PJ Tucker did. Tucker and Holiday are just like hornets in Devin Booker's bird's nest right now. Three of fourteen from the field, went one of seven from downtown. Ten points, a minus thirteen, as was his backcourt running mate Chris Paul, who was okay on the night, also struggled from deep, and that's just gonna gonna go ahead and. And, and decide a lot of these games is the down is the outside shooting nine of thirty one for the Phoenix Suns, fourteen of thirty six for the Milwaukee Bucks. Obviously, more likely to shoot better at home if you're the home team. Seeing how the role players operate, but 120-100, What can be done by the Phoenix Suns to combat this kind of uh, this kind of game plan? Well, it's it's got to be getting DeAndre Ayton. More flow in the offense, getting him moved around more around the ball, moved around more around the court, and don't let him get into these ticky tack fouls. Like Monty Williams, we've seen him talk to DeAndre Aiden. they have a good relationship. Monty, get in his grill and be like, "Dude, you can't. You, if if Giannis is coming down the lane with a full head of steam, just get out of his way. Just give up the two points. He's most likely going to get fouled anyways, and it's it it might be better on the scoreboard if he makes one of two and they only get one point on that possession. But if it's Eight minutes left in the first quarter, and it's your second foul, DeAndre. We're in trouble. We're in trouble because then DeAndre is thinking about it. He's thinking about, oh, do I contest here? Do I not contest here? I might get my next foul. What do I do? Oh, I'm, I'm starting to become paralyzed. And if you become paralyzed in your mind in an NBA Finals game against this guy, Giannis Antetokounmpo, with the Freak District. That's what I'm, I'm not calling it the Deer District. We're calling it the Freak District because Giannis built that thing. Without Giannis, there is no Deer District. You got that plus 20,000, and Giannis on top of you, you can't be thinking in in terms of uh, taking pauses and, and trying to react to what's happening. You just have to do it. And so far, Giannis Antetokounmpo is doing it in this series. I thought Milwaukee played this type of game plan in game two. The only thing that happened was Phoenix shot the lights out, 23s. It's going to be very difficult to beat a team that shoots and hits 23s in an NBA game. Not the same formula worked. For the Phoenix Suns in this one, only hit nine, and that's why the Milwaukee Bucks I think found something in Game Two in terms of punishing in the paint, letting Giannis go to work, using him as the biggest mismatch on the chessboard, and then they were able to uh, work it beautifully to victory in Game Number Two behind a dominant 35-17 uh, run in the second quarter and a slammed a door shut three straight triples from Drew Holiday in the third quarter. A full team effort gives the Milwaukee Bucks life here and we head to game four the pivotal game four in any nba final series if milwaukee loses this it's probably going to be a gentleman's sweep going back to phoenix for game number six excuse me for game five but if milwaukee wins i'd be worried from the Suns; be very worried because they have the best player on the court and it's not even close his name's Giannis antetokounmpo and he's just put up back-to-back 40-point double-doubles. He smells blood, people. And we smell the end of this round in the 3 by 3 Still sticking with my Milwaukee Bucks to win in seven. I expect another continuation of this great series. Hopefully get a little bit of a tighter game. We haven't had so many tight games so far in this one. But for my uh, co-host, Patrick Fett, going to be back with us on Friday. I'm Russ Heltman, wishing everybody a happy, healthy rest of the week. Enjoy the rest of the NBA Finals, the All-Star Game tonight. Have a good one, everybody.